Well, this book is a little bit different. It takes out a lot of like history of rape and everything. All that stuff is out. You can read that elsewhere. But if you want, this takes you from the initial 911 call or call to the precinct or even to special victims to the hospital. Um, to even before you leave, before you leave running a you know records check nowadays, it's a little different, but we used to run that right away. Going to the, the hospital, getting the quick story from the victim, and then going over to work with crime scene, have having an idea of what you're 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 in command of that um um uh, that crime scene. And I don't necessarily mean that you know you're in charge, whatever, but you are because you go to court and you're the one testifying, right? So you got to take control of that. So that's what I did in this in this in this investigators uh, guide is I just put the, the, the basic stuff in there. And there's some stuff in there that people will laugh at. One of them is, you know, I have in there, you got to bring a pen and some paper with you. Right now, everybody kind of laugh at that. But I cannot tell you how many times I've been to a scene where somebody else, another detective asked the victim, can I borrow a pen and a piece of paper? You know. We got to be a little more professional than that. So I put some of that down in there. And this book is, is, is also talks about false reports, which John and I, John Cimino and I, uh, we estimated we had at least 20% of our cases were false reports. I've been involved in over 300 arrests of women and men for false reports. So that's part of the book. Part of the book is how not to, Get a false confession. Um, sometimes it's hard. Some cops don't necessarily always do this on purpose, but sometimes it's hard. They they get frustrated after a while and they'll give out information, you know. So I talk about this. I put some links in the book. It's in the Kindle book as well, and I'm gonna make this into a, a five day course. But I put some links in that were for some that cops would like, like from the Wire. There was a scene where they they go to the crime scene. All they use is the F word to communicate. You guys might know that scene. Yeah, it was a great. It, it was a great scene. Actually, suicide yeah. was actually, you know, a homicide. How, how you have to really investigate a crime, and how you have to invest yourself in the victim, and treat your victim as if it's your, your, your sister, your mother, your brother, your father, whatever. I know, we all, who are professionals, do that. But I, I want to impress upon the younger detectives and patrolmen and so forth that are learning this, but this is what they need to do. Um, so that was covered in the book. I covered, uh, I went all the way into wrongful convictions. And I said, I say, listen, the case usually stops at prosecution, people say, but I say, no, it stops. It doesn't stop. If you get a wrongful conviction, you get pieces of evidence that come to you. You have to go and, and now research and make sure that, you know, you don't have an innocent man in there. Now, it doesn't happen that often, but we have to prevent it. So I go into some things like that as well. John, let me, uh, let in me the just... Book. And I think John, it's a very good book for patrolmen. Like I said, if you don't have a sex crime and you're like riding... I worked here for three years down here in Florida as a deputy. I I can tell you, not that these guys were, were not doing their job or anything, but everybody I worked with could have used this book. John, and can I just make one quick crime, point to you? They John, I got to make one quick point here. Take the, the call, you know. I so think here, uh, yeah. I think the book would be would be very uh, instructional to new detectives and also, like I said, patrol officers, people that never even did a, a sex crime investigation before. John, John, can you hear us? Are you hearing us? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, real real quick, I just want to make one quick point. Shame on any detective. Shame on any detective, I'll say it a second time, that shows up to the scene of, God forbid, a rape or something like that and asks a victim for a pen or a piece of paper. That guy should not, shouldn't have a shield and shouldn't be an investigator. Well, I'm with you on that. And, and, and in the book, I also talk about something that's happened to me a couple of times. Somebody interviewing the victim on the bed where the attack occurred. Wow. You know, I mean... I, I've had a, a uh, it was, she was an inspector at the time. I won't name her. She was in the 19th precinct. And one day I went up to the, to the scene to interview the victim. And she's sitting there asking the victim questions that, you know, 
the victim knew that I should be asking her, and who was this woman? And uh, it turned out I told the inspector, I said, Inspector, you know, I've got to put you on the thing for the court list now because you're going to have to testify. And boom, she was gone out of there. Yeah, um, for sure. So... Joanne or whatever her name was. Uh, she and I know, I I know exactly. I, I know who it is. But like, I know exactly who you know it is. name was. She and I John, didn't see eye to eye. I'm not saying anything you. else bad about him. John, saying, I want to ask you in that something. Case, He's not hearing you at the, all. She did the wrong thing. But, you know, bosses have, not. I'm talking about, uh, you know, higher up bosses. They want to stick their nose in where it doesn't belong. You guys probably have been through that as well, I'm sure. Yeah, th that does happen. Uh, uh, John, can you hear Bill? He seems to think that you can't yeah, hear him. I've been trying to ask you a question, and you're not you're not hearing me. Are you hearing me at all? I, he's a little low. I can't I can't hear him as as, yeah, yeah. as good. Well, Maybe you can transfer the question. His mic his mic is a little muffled. Bill, why don't you ask me, and I'll ask John. Well, I was just going to ask him uh, in sex crimes, but a lot of people don't realize that there are so many uh, false reports, and he said up to twenty percent. Uh, Advocates of sex crime investigation will refute that and say that's not true. But the real investigators, I think they know that that is, in fact, the truth. That is, that, Bill, that's correct. Okay. False reports have always been a problem. And in order to talk to people about it, it it's a very hot topic. We've swung from the 70s where, you know, nobody was supposed to believe the victims, I guess into an era where everybody just believed victims and any break in the logic, they just explain away. And I've seen other detectives do it. But of course I, I learned from John and then I, of course I worked on myself on these things. And the false reports, Linda Fairstein at one point said 50% of the 5,000 cases that came through the DA's office were false reports. Now I'm not gonna go that high, but I will tell you, that it was at least 20, sometimes 30% of cases. And you got to remember other cases that I would look at on the board that would be from other detectives. You look at it and you're like, hmm, and then they just B6 the case or whatever. And me, I wouldn't be six. I'd get an A1, you know. Well, well John, let me, ask you, let me ask you something about false reports. How do you um, disprove a report that, you in fact think is a false report. How, how do you go about uh, proving that it's a false report? The first thing you do is when you, you have to know your crime scene, obviously, you know that both of you guys, you have to know the crime scene, your evidence and so forth. But once you know that, you know, you've been to the crime scene and uh, can I give you an example or are you? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I mean, I know I, the answer. I want to all listeners. Billy, your mic is good now. Uh, yeah, I, I fixed it. I okay. was able to fix uh, One it. of the cases I had, uh, a, a woman said she was, uh, somebody broke into the apartment. She was about 19, broke into the apartment, cut her with a razor, raped her, uh, went through the house, you know, looking for stuff, and then left through the through the rear window to on the fire escape. So the first thing we find is we find a, um, we find a, a, a pregnancy test in a garbage pail in the bathroom. Right. Second thing we do is I go up after crime scene is done and, you know, they're, they're good. Crime scene's good, too. They see these things, too. But what I did was I went up the fire escape and the fire escape had just been painted. You know how it gets tacky and there's marks on it when I put my feet, but there were no marks on it before me. Then I went to the window and the window had cobwebs on it. Then I looked at the bed below the window where you would jump to and that bed was flat. So what happened is I allowed the victim to go to the hospital and I actually talked to talk to an emergency room doctor. You know, what he told me, he said, I said, doc, what do you think about those, um, that wound on her face? He said, that could come up from a straight edge razor. Okay. Now it didn't look like that to me. It, what it looked like to me was somebody took their fingernail and scraped it across her eye. Now where this emergency room doctor came up again, it's, it's, you have to believe all victims, and that's not the way it works. But anyway, I brought her back to the, the station, and they thought it was a big, um, it was part of a burglary rape case uh, series that was going on in Ninth Precinct. So Sergeant Wazalewski, I don't know if any of you guys know him, Waz? Yeah, I, I know who he is, yeah. Yeah, he was my boss at the time, so he had me go over there to court. I took care of the case, brought her back up to the office, and 
I explained things to her. And then I said, listen, at this point, from what I know and all the evidence, I now have to give you your Miranda warnings because now you're uh, under suspicion for filing a false report. So I give the Miranda warnings. And then what I typically do in most of these cases is walk out, give about a couple minutes, walk back in. And typically, not always, but typically the false reporter would be crying. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. This is what happened. Or, you know, sometimes you had women who were uh, jumping off the wagon. They were cocaine addicted women and their husbands, you know, they were out on a bender. They come back and they, they make the story up and, you know, you're locked. She said, I'm locked up in a room for three days. I said, all right, you're locked up. Where'd you go to the bathroom? All of a sudden you get a look like they didn't think about that. Right. So you get a look like what the heck's going on. So these were the false reports we're talking about. The biggest, the, the biggest false report, and I'll give John Savino credit here while we talk, because it's a good story. A couple from Canada came down to Central Park, and they said their baby was kidnapped from the park in the middle of the day. Now, even Homicide Squad knew that this is this is BS, right? But they couldn't get her to talk, the mother or the father. So John went in, and he said, can I talk to the, to the mother for a second? He went in, and within... 10, 15 minutes, he came out with a map of where the baby was up in Canada in a ditch, dead. And they asked him, well, how did you do this? And he said, I just asked him, I said, how many, well, how long were you staying down here? Oh, two or three weeks. Okay, is that your, all your luggage right there, everything? Yeah. He said, okay, take out the baby's clothes for me. Her face went to white. She wow. couldn't tell him. So therefore, boom. And she comes out with a map, and sure enough, RCMP found the body up there. That's so a that's a brilliant. Is, that's yeah. one of my learning experiences. But that base, I've I've had hundreds of arrests of, of women for false reports, and I I think during a like a couple month period, me and John must have had like twenty three arrests. We were just, it, you know, and but that but hey John, remember, hey, hey John, I get that I, many I arrests. In... I don't mean to talk too much, but if you get that many arrests, I mean that many false reports. You still, if it's 20%, you still got another 80% that are real that you need to spend time with. And back then, we only had 22 detectives to work 5,000 cases. So your your caseload was big. Hey, John, you know, you know I, I worked in the squad a lot of years. You came right after me. I think I, I retired right before you got there. Yeah. And, hey, John. Um, he's John, not hearing us, I don't think. Can you, can you hear me, John? Yeah, I can hear you. I, I worked in the squad a lot of years, and... Obviously, when uh, somebody would be reporting either a rape or some type of a sexual assault, they would notify the squad first. We would usually, I mean, I worked in the 6-0 squad a lot of years, so we would respond or we would have the person in the squad room. We would try to talk to them and get some brief details. Now, obviously, if it was a stranger rape or a stranger sex attack and we felt that it was credible, we would immediately notify uh, you know, we used to call it the sex crime squad back then. Then it became special victims. We would notify them. And, uh, but we wouldn't be afraid to ask the tough questions. If there was something that wasn't adding up, like you gave a great point when you said the first thing that your partner Savino said to the woman was, uh, show me the baby's clothing. The, 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 the color probably went out of her face. That was a great point. Now, again, when, when we're, uh, you know, we're, uh, presented with a case and we're supposed to be getting, uh, uh, you know, we're supposed to be defending victims and trying to get justice for victims. But if you know, something is not right, it doesn't smell right. I was never afraid to ask the tough questions. And I've used this uh, analogy before and it being Christmas time. If I don't get a Christmas card this year from that person, that's okay. I don't mind upsetting the apple cart a little bit, especially when someone's peeing in my eye and telling me it's raining, you know what I mean? So, but I think that, uh, you know, the way that the New York city police department is set up, there's good detectives in the squad and even good people on patrol. I mean, patrol would, would notify us of, of something. They'd say, listen, we got this woman. She's claiming this, this or that, but we don't think it's so. I mean, listen, that didn't happen a lot of times. They're saying it's 20%. I don't think the number was that high where I work. However, I'm sure I'm not going to deny that there are people that make up these stories. And again, they go out on a bender, just like you said, and it happens. And being a good detective, especially 
a good sex crimes or special victims detective, you have to be able to decipher those things, you know, and, and a lot of times it's just a, a little thing here or there. And, you know, it all starts to add up and then you have to press down and you have to sometimes get tough with a victim or a witness or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, you got to get to the truth. I've listened to the radio and heard a story on the radio about some outlandish thing. Uh, you know, it wasn't in New York. It was in Jersey. A kid was kidnapped, held the whole day, you know, blah, blah, blah. I knew it was BS right away. And I said it, you know, I was in a call with my wife. I said it. And then I called my partner and sure enough, you know, I, I said, oh, Audie, there's going to be another one. And sure enough, the next day they would say, well, the person that reported it was now arrested for filing a false police report. We kind of build instincts is the point. And we know when, when things just aren't adding up, you know. So uh, that's just one of the points I wanted to make. But listen, I think that uh, you do great work. And that, that handbook that you put out, that's probably going to be very, very uh, good tool for, you know, let's say a patrolman that works in a small town. And, you know, a lot of times they'll kick the investigation to the state police. But maybe on, on the early stages of the investigation, that book would probably be a great tool for somebody like that. Yeah, you know, Phil, I'm hearing a lot of cracking. I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, I don't know either. I I thought it was you trying to get your mic going. No, I don't think so. I think it, it might be from his phone. Maybe because well, uh, I'm hearing a lot of scratching. Know, Phil, and I'm sorry. You were talking there. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear that. But I just want to make one mention on that. Yeah. You know what it is, too? Uh, I've, I'm, John and I both have received flowers from these women we've arrested. And they got arrested in Manhattan. But it had to be a full confession, and the DA, like Linda Fairstein, the Lisa Friel, they have to go along with it. So you know, you really have to put your evidence in order for that. But the thing was never to be argumentative or yelling at a victim. And I did the same thing with suspects, and it it went a great way for me to be able to get confessions and so forth from not only suspects but also you know false reporters is to not. Not yell at them, not scream at them, because they're just gonna they're just gonna defense up, up you know, they're just gonna you know buck up, up and that's gonna be it. I, you know, I've had guys I've worked in Sing Sing as a correction officer, I had a guy that he was sexually assaulted and, and raped and, and robbed a woman. And uh I, I had got him to confess by talking about Sing Sing. And he told you know, I told the truth, it wasn't false. Bill, Bill are you like, hearing his yeah, yeah. you know, uh, John know. John, you're uh, you're cracking up. You're, I'm gonna remove you, and I'm gonna have you come back in because your sound is horrible. All right? Uh, can you hear me, uh, good Phil? Yes, I I can hear you. No, you know you're... that's all that's all his sound. His sound is horrible right now, and that's yeah. He, I think the crackling was coming from him. Yeah. You're still a little bit low. You were better for a few minutes. You're still a little low, but low. But I could hear you. I could. I all could, right. Uh, let me let, let me hang on one second. I just uh, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, it sounds like you're muffled, like there's something. How, how, right I, how am I right now? That's good. That's yeah, good. I just had to change it. Uh, you know, it's all coming. It's a phone sometimes. We apologize to you guys that are listening. Yes. He, he didn't know that he had to have Google Chrome to log on to StreamYard. And then he went on with his phone and at the last minute, and the sound is, is horrible. I'm going to bring him back and see if his sound is better. John, can you hear me now, John? Yeah, your, your sound is uh, cracking up. I think he's uh, frozen. Too. Yeah, I think you. I'm going to bring him out. What we what we intended to talk about. He uh, John Bezer worked uh, in 1994, I believe it was the 1998. The Upper East Side of Manhattan had what was known as a, a rape pattern called the East Side Rapist or the Silver Gun Rapist, and um, he was following women into buildings on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is uh sort of the gold coast of manhattan and uh it went on for four years uh from 1994 to 1998 and this individual was never apprehended and there's many theories about it they have dna they were trying they were going to try to do um the ancestry dna to try to get him apprehended let me try to see if i can bring john back here go ahead there's john, a couple it, of questions i had from too it's still John. Your sound is still uh, it's cracking up. That's uh, can you can you maybe uh, lower your phone a little bit? Maybe that'll do it. I think if he lowers his volume, that may help sometimes. Yeah, John. Can you lower your volume? 
Can you hear us, John? Sorry about that. Now he's frozen, Billy. You know what? I think it's his Wi-Fi. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Uh, so yeah, Philly, he was talk he was gonna uh, talk about the uh, Upper East Side rape pattern, and I think that you read a bit about it. Uh, yes, he sent, he sent us a um, he sent us a uh, a synopsis of it uh, by email. You want to talk a bit about it? Yeah, yeah, I'll talk a bit about it. Um, I'm gonna try and pull it up. Um, I know that. Uh, well, basically, he had a rundown of. Uh, he was obviously assigned to the pattern. Like you said, it was 16 cases. He probably got assigned to it after the first three or four cases, I would imagine. And what he did was he chronicled uh, steps that they were going to take to try and uh, cover all the bases anytime there was a, a rape case reported. Now, it was the Upper East Side. Uh, the, basically, what he told me in the intro before we went on the air was that um, – uh, the, the perpetrator was following these females into a two-door building that didn't have a doorman. Now, what a two-door building is, it's a small vestibule. You go into the first door, there's usually a bank of bells that you would ring the bell, and then you get buzzed in. And for, for whatever reason, he uh, this perpetrator was able to uh, sneak up on women where they would they would walk into the building and they wouldn't see him until they were in between those two doors and boom he'd be right on them he'd produce the gun he would uh, either take them to their apartment and commit the sex act or he would sometimes do it actually in a dark spot somewhere in the building in the hallway or whatever uh, a couple of times he did beat uh, the victims I guess victims that probably put up a struggle. Uh, turned around and, and uh, you know, tried to fight him off and he he did beat them. But uh, none of them were killed, I believe. I don't think, were, were any of them, uh, did any of them actually no, turn? None, none of them were killed. But one of the things about this pattern, it lasted four years. And, uh, and then not only did then. they have specialized units on it, but they had all the anti-crimes from across the city working in the 19th precinct on overtime with a sketch of this individual uh, trying to uh, maybe stop him before he committed a crime. And reviewing all the cases for the MO, which is the modus operandi, which is very, very important, uh, not just when tracking a perpetrator, but when trying to figure out how and where uh, and what he's going to do when he strikes, what his MO is. And his MO was specifically following women into buildings that had double doors. Obviously, he wouldn't go into doorman buildings because right. he would be seen by the doorman. So he chose these buildings where maybe, you know, a, a real safety problem in New York City is buildings that have the uh, mail uh, between uh, the mailboxes, between the door outside that's unlocked and the door inside that is locked. So that when people go to get their mail, that's a lot of times when perpetrators, robbers, rapists, grand larcenists, that's where they'll strike between those two doors. And this was specifically his M.O. And then when you talk about, I don't know, Philly, if you could explain signature, what the signature of a rapist is. Uh, are you familiar with that term? Sure. I mean, signature is going to be, um, uh, let's say, God forbid, there's a rape and uh, the perpetrator will use a condom or he'll put a scarf over his face or he'll use uh, some type of a substance to overcome uh, the victim, these would be considered signatures of that particular rapist. Uh, you know, another thing could be uh, what the rapist says. You know, Absolutely. he may say a very specific thing every time. And that's one of the ways uh, that investigators know that it's the same guy. Besides uh, when they do get DNA, of course, uh, connecting the DNA. There's also something, and uh, it's called um, geographical profiling. Now, geographical profiling is profiling according to where the perpetrator is going to strike. And now, uh, geographical profiling is profiling according to where the perpetrator is going to strike. John, you you have your phone on? Sounds okay. like he has the computer on as well as the phone. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's back. Uh, it's uh, it's behind. Anyway, so. Um, well, we were talking about the uh, the signatures, the, the signature, yes, Ge so geographical, geographical uh, profiling, because most perpetrators strike in an area a that they're familiar with, b that is very close to where they live, right, and it could also be that the perpetrator works in that area, 
So he's very accustomed to this area and he's comfortable with it. So that, that in, uh, takes into account something called geographical uh, profiling. Uh, with this case, they made three appearances on the TV show, America's Most Wanted. And even with all that publicity, uh, he still was never apprehended and he remains at large to this day. You know, Bill, you brought up that point about uh, the geographical area. I mean, I think to me what that spells out, it's the comfort zone of the perpetrator. He's going to he's going to prey on an area that he's going to be. He wants to feel comfortable with it. He wants to uh, he wants to know the area. He wants to feel comfortable with the area again so he can pray do what he has to do and escape without being apprehended. So a lot of times, like you said, it, it could be a rapist that takes in an area, uh, you know, where he works or close to where he lives. Um, it's just amazing how much went into this case. I mean, John listed a bunch of things. Like you said, the three appearances on America's Most Wanted. I mean, America's Most Wanted in those days, that was a number one rated television show with tremendous viewership. Uh, there's been cases that I've been involved with that uh, were very successful once they were profiled on America's Most Wanted. So, um, again, going back to the signature, I, I worked on a case where they formed a task force because it was really, really getting out of control. It was like 30 or 40 cases. It wasn't a rape. It was a sex abuse where a guy would hide in the bushes and he would jump out of the bushes. He would throw a pillowcase over the woman's, uh, the victim's head, and he would just uh, fondle them. He would grab their breasts and then take off. And it later was determined to be a police officer from the actual precinct where we were uh, turning out of from the from the task force it was in the six eight precinct, and uh, this officer actually worked in that precinct, and uh, it was eventually uncovered, and he was arrested and charged and thrown off the police force. But uh, that would be a, another signature. You That's know, how John, we knew. Uh, John Beza put in the since he can't uh, his sound is bad, he put in the chat. The Eastside rapist also took souvenirs from victims' licenses and IDs. That's known as a trophy. Yes. Uh, in in rape patterns and even murder patterns and uh, serial killer, serial, serial rapists, they take trophies because it helps them to relive the experience of A, of the rape, of the violence of it. And that's why they take what's called trophies. And in fact, the East Side Rapist was doing this. Uh, this case took on, I mean, they traveled to uh, California to track a suspect. Uh, no stone was left unturned in this case. And even after all of this time, and the pattern ended in 1998, uh, sad to say that no one was uh, ever apprehended. They've, they've taken hundreds, thousands of samples of voluntary samples of DNA to uh, elimination DNA to see if they could make a, uh, a hit with the, uh, the East Side Rapist. However, as I said, to this day, there have been no, uh, no one has been identified he had spoken to me off the air saying that they were looking into maybe trying to use ancestry DNA uh, where they have something called familial DNA. And uh, Philly, I don't know if you know enough about that to explain that, but uh, that's that's how they've gotten a lot of hits on serial. The, the killer in California who was recently apprehended a year or two ago that did murders and rapes like 35 years ago, he was just identified uh, a year or two ago from familial DNA. Yes. Yes. An ancestry site. Yeah. You know, familial DNA, uh, DNA uh, uh, expertise and science has gotten so good that what you're talking about, the familial DNA, uh, if there's a DNA sample and there is uh, DNA uh, in a database, it could actually say that this person that you have their sample is actually related to someone within the database. So what that would do is that would give you a person to go talk to. And it, it could even be so exact as to say it's related as a sibling or a cousin or a, a parent, things of that nature. So now you would go to that person and you would try to, I guess, tiptoe around to investigate uh, what connection do you have to uh, you'd know who the victim was. So you'd say to the location, what connection do you have to this location? Da, 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 da. And you'd start the conversation like that. And then you would then 
if it comes up as a sibling, do you have any brothers or sisters? And then you would go from there and say, where, where are the, what's their whereabouts? What do they do? And go into that area. And a lot of times cases, like you said, Bill, have been solved based on familiar DNA. Uh, K.H. Walker, genetic genealogy caught the Golden State Killer. That's who I was referring to. Thank you very much for bringing that up. And I think that case was like 30 or 35 years old. And thank God he's going to be held accountable. Uh, I, I don't know how many murders he did, but science is, is an unbelievable thing. Uh, John Beza and his partner spent uh, five days at the, um, uh, excuse me, they, they traveled to Quantico to meet with 10 FBI profilers and a waste of time. I mean, that, um, you know, everyone thinks that this, you, you say those three letters FBI and they think that the, the Lord is going to come down from the sky. You know, I found that profiling is. Uh, it's a little it's, too general, Billy. I think it's, it's way too, you know, when, when, I, when I was watching the, um, the Beltway Sniper and the FBI came up with a profile of a male white 35 to 45, everything was wrong. The yeah. shooter was a male black, he was 17. That's what it turned out to be. After that profile, I was like, they're done, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. You know? yeah, yeah, listen, a lot of work goes into those profiling things. And listen, Quantico, the FBI lab there, they do have some tremendous scientific experts there that really can uh, decipher evidence and help locate different things when it comes to uh, examination of evidence. Uh, I'm not going to say that they don't have a great lab there, but the profiling, uh, as he said, he spoke with 10 different profilers at the end of the day, he thought it was a waste of time. And listen, when you have a case like this and it's all these rapes and it's the Upper East Side of Manhattan, I guess, you know, you're, you're going the extra mile. You're doing all these different things. I'm sure the bosses probably took a big interest in this case and were saying, why don't you get a hold of the FBI, talk to the profilers. So they covered a lot of bases here. And it's been my experience that when you have a pattern and the pattern goes dead, meaning all of a sudden it stops, a lot of times it could be that the perpetrator is dead or the perpetrator is incarcerated. Now, the way DNA works today, if you're incarcerated on most felonies and some misdemeanors, they take a sample of your DNA in New York anyhow. So now your DNA is in the database. So I would think that if it was somebody that was incarcerated for a misdemeanor that they didn't take their DNA, they wouldn't have been in jail for a long period of time. And the rapes, uh, the sexual assaults may have you know, start it up again. So the, the the angle that they're taking on this case or what they feel is that it could have been someone related to a, a, a foreign consulate, whether it be a son of or a person that worked in a consulate, and now they were moved out of the consulate to another country. And uh, that's, you know, that's probably a good indication what could have happened. I think it's obvious, you know, the other two that I mentioned are also good indications, but I would think if they were incarcerated with the way DNA is taken today on, uh, you know, long-term incarceration, there something would have popped. You know, the, the other thing was back in 1994, 1998, there was a statue of limitations to rape. So someone came up with the brilliant idea of indicting the DNA even though the DNA wasn't, obviously, they didn't know who it was. It wasn't identified. They would indict the DNA profile right? so that they would it, would it would not go past the statute of limitations. I think since that point, the law has been changed, and they don't have to worry about that anymore. But that was a brilliant I idea. That really is. Uh, that sounds like Joe Murray territory to me. <laughs> Something that he would come up with, you know. But well, – I think Joe it was Mario a great or idea. Michael Vecchione, you know, that's yeah, that's that's yeah. really ingenious. It could be. They also um, they spent five days at eight hours a day at the New York State DMV in Albany, going through DMV photos of the zip codes that covered the entire 19th precinct, hoping that they could identify a possible perpetrator that lived in the 19th precinct from motor vehicle photos, and that was also met with negative results. Uh, those every are tremendous Friday, steps that they're taking, Billy. That really, they put in the work on this case. Well, every Friday and Saturday night, they would take out, take a victim out with them, and canvas the entire 19th precinct. Also, a very effective way. It's called a victim canvas, uh, because who's better than the eyes of the victim to identify the perpetrator? And many times, the perpetrator is walking around the street free, as if he's uh, just a normal human being going about his business. 
Yes, I, I've done hundreds of those victim canvases. They've been uh, successful only a handful of times. I'll admit the truth. It's not uh, a lot of times that you're uh, you're going to actually capture the, uh, you know, the perpetrator on a victim canvas. But again, like you said, when we would have robberies that took place near the train station, we would, uh, you know, take the victim over at the same date, you know, the same day of the week and time. And a lot of times, yeah, a, a perpetrator that was robbing people coming off the train would be in the area and we would uh, be successful in uh, making an arrest on a case like that here's joe murray now joe murray the dna collection thank you for the 499 super chat the dna collection from convicted defendants is very sloppy and not done by medical professionals it's done by court officers you know joe the way that uh, dna is collected it's just collected through a swab of the inside of the uh, cheek with a uh, q-tip and then it's put inside you can even have the defendant do it himself right or herself and then it's put inside a paper uh, envelope and because paper doesn't degrade uh, evidence if they put it in plastic it degrades the evidence so that's how it's collected it's not really advanced rocketry to collect dna and it's not intrusive at all it's not like we're taking blood or taking cutting hair we're just persons just swabbing the inside of their cheek cells uh, for dna cells so that's how it's done and i know an attorney would always find a reason to say oh that's that's not a medical personnel i mean how much training do you need to swap the inside of someone's cheek with a Q-tip? I, I see where he's going with it, cross-contamination. I, I yeah, I can see yeah, all but, of that. But listen, yeah. it's what you said. If if you ever taken a DNA sample, it's what you said. You take the Q-tip, you go on the inside of the mouth, you rub it up and down about four or five times against the skin, and you're going to pick up the DNA, and it goes into that container, that whether it be an envelope or whatever container that they use. And, you know, I, I don't think that, there's really a lot of possibility if you're using common sense that you could really uh, mess that up. Again, I, I don't know if Joe's going to put up another comment about it, but uh, there may be a case that he's working on where uh, DNA was connected, uh, uh, collected sloppily, and uh, it could have, uh, you know, could have been uh, compromised. And I don't know. We'll have to see what Joe says about that. But I, I really think that the DNA science is really, really good. It's gotten so much better. I mean, when I was first working homicides, the only thing when we would get a blood sample and, and send it for DNA, they'd be able to tell us if it was human or animal blood or, or human or it would just say human or non-human. And it was able to tell us male or female. Now you would have to have a person to collect from to do a match. There was no databases in them days, but now today, I mean, look at the advances that they've done with it. I mean, they can take a, uh, from nine 11, they can take tiny little pieces of bone and come up with DNA by doing all different things. They can extract DNA from it. So the, the science of DNA has really, really advanced and, uh, I think it's great. It's a great tool in uh, in, in law enforcement's uh, utility belt. Well, you know, folks, with the uh, Phil was mentioning at 9-11, a lot of the advances, not just in New York City, but throughout the whole world, is due to the 9-11 attacks that the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and our old friend Barbara Butcher was the was the lead person in, in the DNA for, uh, for identifying 9-11. And what they needed was they needed what's called an exemplar. And if, say, I was missing during 9-11, they would go to my family and get uh, some of my clothing, maybe a toothbrush, maybe a hair, although I didn't have any hair, really, that they could collect from, because I kept my hair so short, there was no hair left in the They'd go right to that Irish hat yeah, you wear. And pull yeah, yeah they'd, go right, they'd go to my hat, pull up, you know, sweat, whatever, and that's how they would get an exemplar. And the exemplar was put into the World Trade Center database, and that's how they made a lot of identification. You, you know, the, Bill, they could even use, you, you brought up a good point. They would even be able to use your children to compare DNA. If well, uh, yeah, that'd be familial DNA. And if it was yeah. a close, close match. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, with this, this was um, one of the things that in special victims does, which I found, I find tremendously interesting and uh, they still do it. And this is a detective in this picture. His name is Alan Sandemir. And he was an excellent detective, him and his uh, partner, Eddie Tacky. And they were known as the um, occult, the cold hit detectives. And what a cold hit is when they would get a hit on DNA and the, the, the suspect was in prison. 
So they would go to visit the prisons around New York State, and they would go visit the uh, perpetrator in prison. And you think it's very easy, but how they would confront him, they would go and introduce themselves, and, and they wouldn't just say, oh, we found your DNA above you. They would lead up to that. They would say, you know, we, we just want to ask you a few questions, you know. Uh, and I'm just, I'll just make up the scenario. Have you ever been inside uh, uh, 3333 Broadway? The guy would be like, nah. You ever been inside apartment five boy in that in that building? I told you I've never been in that building. So you've never been in part apartment five boy. No, no, I've never been in that building. Okay. Have you ever met this woman here? Then you could see on their face, you know. No, I, I don't know who she is. I don't know who she is. Okay, so let's take this statement. You've never been in 3333 Broadway. You've never been in Five Boy. You don't know this woman. You've never met this woman before. No, they would, he'd sign a statement, negative on all those questions, and they would break it to him. Guess what? Your DNA was found in that apartment, and your DNA was found inside this woman who you've never met. What that would do is slam the door on any possibility of this perp saying we had consensual sex. Because A, he was never in that building. B, he was never in apartment five boy. Right. And C, he never met this woman before. How right. could you have consensual sex with someone you never met before? Yeah, that, that's a so, smart that smart interrogator. Right. So they would slam the door and all those. These guys were amazing at it. They would, and they, all of a sudden, the guy who was getting out in six months, you're going to be getting out in six months in the year 2042, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because they were so good at their job, you know? And, uh, it's Alan Sandemir and his partner Eddie Tacky were part of the cold, the cold hit DNA unit of uh, Manhattan Special Victims. That, that sounds like uh, a good team there. Uh, they uh, employed some really good uh, detective tactics. You know, Bill, I just wanted to make a comment about what John was talking about about the false reporting. You know, uh, there's just I, I want to make this clear. I don't want anybody that's watching or any of our subs or any people that are listening to think that we're not being empathetic towards uh, a God forbid, a rape victim. I mean, I had a case one time, uh, not me personally, but me and guys in the squad, um, uh, a woman was jogging on the boardwalk in Coney Island. She was uh, hit upon by five, uh, five youths, uh, a wolf pack. They dragged her under the boardwalk. They beat her and they raped her. And by the time she got into the precinct, I mean, she literally had a heel print, on her forehead, a black and blue heel print. Now, when you are met with something like that, she was found half clothed when she came out from under the boardwalk uh, by the uniformed police officers. You know, all of these different uh, indicators, it was quite obvious that there was no uh, nonsense in her story. Uh, just a sub note, a few days later, within about uh, two, or, two or three days, uh, the five perpetrators were captured and uh, we were actually on the front page of all the newspapers walking them out of the precinct because uh, they took it very lightly. They had the, the, the headline was they laughed all night. And uh, that was just one of those cases. Again, uh, you, you start hearing something that doesn't make sense, you question it. In that case, when you have a victim, she's half clothed, she comes out from under the boardwalk, she's in jogging clothes, she's beat up, she's got that footprint on her forehead. There's no question about what she's going to tell you at that point, unless something you know does appear to be suspicious. But you have to have empathy, obviously, and you also have to be sharp and be able to, if somebody starts giving you BS, you have to be able to push back on that. Joe Murray, I mean, you're coming up with some. You're coming up with some great. Here we go from the trenches of the courts. Thank you for the 1999 super chat. Very much appreciated. A court officer told my client to swab his own cheek by putting his finger in his mouth to open it wider and swab it. I objected because client's hands are on the defendant's table where every other defendant sits. The judge agreed. Oh, that's. Joe, that's, that's Yo, that's why you make the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, the Q-tip has got to come out of a, a packet. It's a sealed packet. And it's got to go from the packet to the person's mouth and then back into the envelope. I mean, that's just common sense to me. I mean, anybody that was uh, was doing that was obviously not instructed properly and an amateur and not doing it the right way. But that's a great point, Joe. See, I knew there was an angle behind when he came up with it from the first. That's a good lawyer, that Joe Murray. You know, this. Uh, these two detectives, uh, the one on the right-hand side is John Sabino. And um, he was uh, he was in Manhattan Special Victims. Uh, as I said, he was a um, 
at one time the most experienced sex crimes investigator in the United States. Brilliant, brilliant detective, and he was John Bezos' um, partner. I just want to tell you a quick story about him. He called he called me up and said, uh, "Sarge, we're all we're all off Sunday." And he goes, "I'm going to be on America's Most Wanted on Saturday night, and I'm featuring a case of this rapist named Stephen Peppuccino, who." Um, raped a girl and almost uh, sta almost stabbed her to death and um i don't want to tell the whole story but he was featured on america's most wanted and he was he was wanted i think for over a year he couldn't find him he was looking from all over sure enough uh, america's most wanted gets shown on a saturday night for some reason no one from special victims is working sunday who's in sunday morning Myself and the A-team of Manhattan North Homicide Squad, all the calls from special victims are coming into our office. The phone is ringing off the hook with calls. Stephen Peppuccino is in Queens. He's in a bar at this such and such a location. So I was like, beautiful, saddle up. We got our horses. We started heading towards Queens. But first I called the Queens squad that was right down the block from this bar. The detectives go in the bar. I told them, look, this guy's Stephen Peppuccino. Here's his nice number. Pull up his picture. He's in the bar. He's wanted for an attempted murder rape. They go in the bar. He's sitting at the bar drinking, and they do an okey-doke. They walk in and out. They don't see him. The bartender's like, that's him, you know. But she can't say it out loud because she, she's terrified. The Queen's detectives leave, and they miss the guy. I get to the bar five minutes later in the bar, and he goes, these detectives came in, and he was sitting right there, and they didn't get it. I was like, oh, my God. I was like crazy. So I, we took a good description of what he was wearing and everything, and I said uh, to the, all the detectives, I go, look, he's an alcoholic. He's going to be in another bar. Let's just canvas the bars around the area. Second bar we looked in, there he is right at the bar. And he had put it out to his family and all his thug friends that he would not be taken alive. But when he had six, nine millimeters pointed at his fat head, he decided to choose life. <laughs> so instead of. Did he ask for one last drink before? No, he like, Can I get one for the road? <laughs> because I'm not going to get out for about 25 to 30 yeah. years. I like but, a short one and you do make them short. <laughs> but that, was, that was another success story from America's Most Wanted. The power of television. It's yeah. just incredible, you know. Now you're gonna get you're gonna get Bill. I mean Joe Murray very upset because he's not a big fan of John Walsh. But oh, I know, I know that's for sure. But hopefully he's not gonna get too excited. But you know something, the show works. The power of television. It's it's just incredibly and it's unbelievable, you know. Um, getting back to the Upper East Side rapist, and Phil uh, alluded to it before, is that they thought that the perpetrator may have been the son of some uh, foreign diplomat because he uh, he just disappeared from the Upper East Side. And that would make sense. Either he left the country because CODIS, which stands for the Combined DNA Identification System, is a national system, not an international system. So he could have left this country and went back to his country and to never come back to this country again and walking around as a free man and unless he's arrested in this country his dna will never pop but uh, that's one of the hopefully in the future dna will be international as far as crime to catch criminals instead of just a national database yeah one of the things that he mentions in the things that the steps that they would take uh, they would really dig deep into the background of the victim, behavioral, behavioral questions like, for instance, he gave one of the scenarios, uh, where do you get your pizza from when you order pizza? Where do you get your food delivered from? Anything like that where there would have been an interaction with a delivery person or uh, locations that they frequented. I guess uh, you'd want to know what gym they go to. Uh, if it was late at night, you know, did you get off the subway? Which stop? And was there a connection that, you know, maybe uh, several of the victims had come from the same train station? So all of those things were very, very important. And he developed a lot of a lot of really good key points that they tried to follow each time there was a victim to try and uncover the identity of this uh, of this rapist. I mean, I know they were unsuccessful. It wasn't that they didn't try. I mean, I think it really sounds like that might be the best scenario so far as with regard to the rapist, him being the uh, employee 
of a consulate or a son or uh, of a uh, of a consulate member. I think he was described as a male. I know he was a male. I think he was a male, black or Hispanic was the general yeah. description, correct? Yeah, and the, the uh, sketch was a little bit um, generic. Uh, it yeah. looked like a lot of people, like a lot of sketches do. And it was a good point you, you were talking about. One of the things I, you know, I was a robbery sergeant for a, a lot of years. And on every robbery report, it always asked the question, where was the victim prior to getting robbed? Right. You know, because that makes a lot of sense. Because if you were in a bar and someone observed you may be a little tipsy, right. they follow you home and rob you. If you're at an ATM and you're withdrawing money, someone may follow you and rob you. Right. If you're walking home late at night by yourself, someone may be following you. So those are the questions that an investigator would ask. And it also applies to sex crimes. Where was the victim prior to uh, the attack occurring? And that's a very important question that all investigators are trained to ask that, uh, to ask that question. Yeah, well, it said they had a questionnaire uh, that every victim was asked to fill out uh, regarding, again, where they got their pizza, where they had their hair done, and things of that nature. What were their familiarities that they did that they could make a connection? What would be the, uh, you know, the, the common denominator between all the victims? And I don't think they ever came up one. You know, Joe Murray, well, uh, someone was asking, why, why does Joe hate John Walsh? He answered it. Joe, John Walsh is a cop-hating, self-aggrandizing, arrogant blank. Mm. <laughs> so I, I think it's a good time to do Joe's commercial. Yes, I think it is. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. And I think Joe has shown what he is worth in, in uh, as an attorney, uh, he comes up with some really, really good points when we're on the uh, show and he uh, does some commenting. I think Joe is, uh, yeah, it's probably a pit bull and that's what uh, you want when uh, you need a really good attorney. You know, folks, I just want to apologize a little bit tonight. And uh, John Bezo is a great guest, but unfortunately the technology got in our way tonight. I, I was unaware that he didn't, and it was my fault, uh, partly, that he didn't have Google Chrome. Because if you don't have Google Chrome on your computer or your laptop, you cannot use StreamYard. It just does not right. work. And that's the technology we use to broadcast this. So he used his phone, and we do not have good success with people using their iPhones. This is the second person that... Just asked uh, Joe Cal from the other night. Yeah, you know, it just does not work very well. And uh, whether it's the sound and, you know, we were hearing what sounded like typing in the background. It was his phone, you know, and then yeah, my, my son was fooling around my computer today trying to get my lighting better. And I think as a result, he must have moved my microphone because I was having a problem with my microphone. So I just apologize for the some of the sound tonight. And I want I, I want to have John Beza come back, but. He either had he could he didn't have enough room on his computer to download Google Chrome. Oh, I was just so, going to say all he's got to do is download. Yeah, he, he yeah. didn't have enough room on his computer. So the next time I'll give him more time and he can either delete something so he can upload that. But he he would be a fascinating guest. He's a great investigator. He has a hell of a lot of experience. He's got that book out, and uh, I just I feel I feel a little stupid that um, that this happened. But you know. You know, Bill, with the phones, when you, when you use the phone, if you do have one of those little tripods, they have all different sizes. If the phone is locked in, you know, it's, it's tight. It could actually be pretty good. I've used, I've used the phone a couple of times and listen, when it's in your hand and it's bouncing around, it's not going to work well, but if it's, it's fixed and here's one other, uh, I guess you can call it a tip. If the phone is plugged into a charging port, it also helps the, uh, the signal to go through better. I've, I've learned that obviously if you're near a Wi-Fi, it's uh, it works wonders better too, but uh, they do have good cameras, the latest phones, the smartphones, but uh, 
that Google Chrome thing. Yeah, that's important. I was going to say, all you have to do is download it onto your computer. But uh, like you said, he didn't have any uh, any room. So we'll have to have him back. And, yeah, uh, definitely. Melissa Amoroso, uh, no, he did not. John did not have uh, an iPad. I asked him that, too. Uh, Joe Murray, he's still talking about John Walsh. Nancy Ali, my dislike for him goes back to 1992 at the National Police Memorial in Washington, D.C. during Police Week, where he was the keynote speaker at Police Memorial, uh, and he trashed the LAPD. So that's why Joe goes back uh, to not liking John Walsh. But the show he has has been very effective. They've helped track many, many fugitives, and they've caught many, many bad guys. You know, tomorrow, folks, uh, Phil and I may be doing a double header, and I think we're gonna at six o'clock we're gonna revisit the um, the Alec Baldwin case because it's not that there's uh, you know smoking gun stuff happening, but the assistant director um, David Halls is now sort of doing a, a a tap dance on some of the things he said. OSHA Office of uh, Office of Safety and Health Administration. Uh, the Organization of Safety and Health Administration, they want to interview him for because they're in charge of investigations in regards to work safety. And he's refusing to meet with them. And a judge issued a subpoena. But I, I believe he could just show up and he has to show up and take the fifth then. Yeah. I yeah. don't think he has to speak. But um, they're trying to you track him down. You would think that a criminal investigation would supersede OSHA's investigation. I'm sure they want to jump in there and, and because OSHA is a federal agency and I'm sure they want to jump in there and get to the bottom of the nonsense that was going on. I mean, it was obviously an unsafe, uh, you know, film shoot. There was things going on, you know, people walked off. We've talked about it before, but uh, they do have uh, investigative power to look into these type of things. But I would think that, you know, an, an attorney, a client shows up with an attorney and says, listen, I'm, I'm not going to allow my client to answer any questions while there's still a pending criminal investigation. And then, you know, they're just going to have to wait. But you know, Phil, he's already tap dancing. Also, his lawyer said he never said he handed him the gun. So now he's saying, and yeah. he admitted to that, to the police saying, I handed him the gun and said, cold gun. And that's what Alec Baldwin's saying. So all of a sudden, these two buddies that were trying to be on the same page, and you got to be careful because one or both of them are lying. Yeah. They could, be, they could be hit with perjury. All of a sudden, his lawyer's saying, oh, no, he didn't hand him the gun. We don't know yeah. how Alec got the gun. So, you know, all of this and stuff you, will come out. If you remember from the 2020 interview with George Stephanopoulos, he said, Oh no, uh, it's, it's standard protocol for the, cause Stephanopoulos actually said, you know, you're not supposed to get the gun from the AD or give the gun back to the AD. He goes, Oh no, that's not true. It happens all the time. Whether it happens all the time is one thing. I believe it probably does happen. However, that's not the protocol. The protocol is the gun is supposed to go from the armorer to the person that's going to be using it, the acting. Obviously, they're supposed to show it's safe and go through those protocols of cold gun, hot gun, whatever it is. But he made it sound like, no, it's that, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not wrong. That's the procedure that is in place. The armor is supposed to hand the actor the gun. However, we know for a fact, Baldwin said it, and I believe he, uh, the AD, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Souza, that he said it. So I, I guess we're going to have to figure out which one of them is telling the truth. So uh, tomorrow at six o'clock, we're going to go. We're going to do a, a little bit of a deeper dive into that because there's some yep. things that are changing now, and we're going to also have John Pellucci on, the great crime scene sergeant from. Uh, he has his own company called Crime Scene Investigation. And he's going to come on. He enjoyed coming on the last time. And I think so did a lot of people that watched him, you know. So uh, he's great. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. And then also at, at nine o'clock tomorrow night. So we're doing double header. At nine o'clock, we have Red, White, and Bethune. So we have Kyle, that. Kyle and Jen Bethune. Those are the folks that um, uh, located Gabby Petito's van, which resulted in the police being able to, and the FBI being able to recover her remains. So a great family. If you don't know anything about them, they're a family that uh, a husband and a wife, Jen and Kyle, and they're three kids. And they lost a son five years ago in a vehicle accident. So they had four kids. They travel around the country in their uh, in their uh, mobile home, and they they they're bloggers, and they, they that's what that's the life they're living. 
I could never spend that much time with my kids. I'd be jumping, I'd be jumping <laughs> off the Grand Teton Mountains there. I, there's no way I could ever do that. I don't know how these people have the patience to do that, but they do that. So tomorrow night at nine, they're going to come on the show, and I believe Duty Ron is going to join us for a bit. And he's going. Uh, so it should be a pretty cool night. So uh, I'm sorry again. I apologize for tonight. Uh, sometimes some of these things are out of your control. And uh, it's called and, live TV, Bill. It happens. Yeah, I, I sound like Alec. I sound like Alec Baldwin making excuses. You know, I don't. I don't want to make any excuses. <laughs> Philly, you got any last thoughts? Last thoughts. Listen, uh, the the subject matter that we were going to go over tonight, we did have those tef- technical difficulties. Obviously, we apologize for that. But again, it's live TV. Um, I don't think any victim should be uh, taken for granted. All victims of horrible, horrible sex crime, sex abuse, rape, whatever it is, uh, should be taken seriously. However, there are some times when there are people like Jesse Smollett. We know what he did. Uh, there's been some others. Uh, and you have to be able to not be afraid as an investigator to ask the hard questions. Again, sometimes uh, you're going to ruffle some feathers. And, uh, you know, if I don't get a Christmas card, I've used that uh, analogy many times. I don't mind. I want to get to the truth. That's what my obligation is as an investigator. Uh, we're all in the Christmas spirit. All the brothers and sisters in blue, please stay safe out there. Our military, please stay safe. I hope everybody gets home to their families. I hope everybody has a great Christmas season. We're only about uh, 10 days out from Christmas. Really looking forward to tomorrow night's show, Billy. Uh, Those people, uh, they just hold a special place in my heart. We were so connected to that Gabby Petito case. I get chills just talking about it. And again, that 6 o'clock show, looking forward to doing that, digging down on uh, some of the latest uh, occurrences regarding the uh, Alec Baldwin uh, incident. Okay, folks, uh, again, uh, everyone stay safe out there, and thank you so much for listening tonight. And uh, we'll make up uh, for tomorrow night at 6, and again at 9, a doubleheader of uh, the Phil and Bill show. (laughs) So everyone be safe and have a great night. Stay safe, everybody.